Well, hey there. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm so glad I get to be with you here in week two of this series we're calling Grown Up Faith. You know, growing up um, is tricky. I have three daughters, age 18, 23, and 25. And so the whole topic of what it means to be an adult or adulting, which is evidently a verb now, um, that whole topic is a topic of conversation in our household. You know, and I, I looked online to find some some quotes from people who are um, new to this whole adulting thing that are learning some important skills, and th- these are pretty good. So, number one, so it turns out that adulting is mostly Googling how to do stuff. <laughs> how did we even learn how to be an adult before Google? It's, it's hard to remember that. Or two, um, being an adult is having the we have food at home talk with yourself. True mark of adulthood, instead of your parents scheduling doctor's appointments, you just avoid the doctor and hope you don't die. (laughs) This one's funny. I love this one. Um, Adulting is finally understanding why your mom was so upset with you when you didn't take the chicken out of the freezer. (laughs) Because coming home to frozen chicken is a bummer. All right, last one. Um, Why did I get $100 from grandma when I was 12, but she gave me a candle for my 30th? Love it because you're an adult. That's why. So, in the, you know, we, we're adulting is, is difficult. Growing up is difficult. We're, but we're calling this series "Grown Up Faith" because I think when it comes to our faith, those of us who are Christ followers, that's really what we want, right? We want a faith that is mature and is resilient and strong and can withstand the test of time and 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 tough times and all of that. But when I survey kind of the Christian landscape, not just kind of at Chase Oaks, but when I kind of look at Christianity and the church in America right now and I read what people are writing and I hear what they're saying, it seems like a whole lot of people are struggling right now. Over 50% of U.S. adults now have no church affiliation. That is the highest percentage ever recorded. Millions of Americans that were just a few years ago affiliated with the church or with a Christian community now just aren't anymore. And some of those people have actively turned their back and walked away. They're disillusioned with the church. Other people have just sort of drifted away and have not really found the church or the message of the church to be all that relevant to their life anymore. But what I think is that, you know, the people who have drifted away or the people who have actively sort of walked away, they're not responding to, to really an authentic res, uh, representation of Christian faith. Um, and that we're going to talk about that this weekend. Last weekend, Ryan did a, a great job of giving us the starting point, you know, the person of Jesus and what he has done for us. That has to be the place where we start any conversation around Christianity. It's also the place that we have to go back to again and again and again. He talked about the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish or shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is the truth. It's at the very center, at the core of the Christian faith. And the more that we sort of forget about that or deviate from that or whatever, the more shaky we're going to be. But what I want to talk about this weekend is how do we, how do we operationalize that truth that it all revolves around Jesus? Like what do we do with all of the other things that the Bible talks about? 
Or all the other things that like Christians disagree about. And what about all the fighting and all the anger in culture? And how are we really supposed to respond and be in culture anyway? And what about all of the things that we are told that we're supposed to believe and how we're supposed to act and all of that? See, my sense is the people who are disillusioned right now are not disillusioned with Jesus. It's all the other stuff. In 1961, Vince Lombardi, the then coach of um, the Green Bay Packers, famously on the first day of training camp, walked into the locker room and said, gentlemen, this is a football. And then he proceeded to tell them the, the basic rules of the game of football and the goal of moving the ball into your opponent's end zone. And to do that, you have to do things like block and tackle and protect the ball. And he was talking to professional athletes in one of the most storied franchises in football history. That particular team in the early 60s won three NFL championships in five years, starting that year in 1961. You wouldn't think that those guys would need a speech like that, but we all need periodically to just be reminded of who we are, what we're doing, how we're supposed to do it, and why. So today, this is going to be a little bit of a, this is a football kind of a talk, but honestly, I think it's going to be super helpful. For those of us who might be a little disillusioned right now or maybe a little distracted by so many things or just tired or confused or worn out, I think this is going to be helpful. And, to, and for our purposes today, uh, we're going to get just a little bit academic because I'm going to use a couple of words that we don't typically use, um, but I think they're going to be instructive for us. Big sort of academic words. Uh, they sound similar to each other, but they have a slightly different meaning. The first word is orthodoxy, which just means right belief. And the second word, which is similar to it, um, is orthopraxy, which just means right behavior. And whether or not we use those words or not, or even heard those words before, anyone who is a Christ follower or, or is endeavoring to be a Christ follower deals with those two things all the time. What is it that I'm really supposed to believe? Like, what's the important stuff? And how am I supposed to act? Because there's certainly no shortage of people who will tell you how you're supposed to act and what you're supposed to believe. But what really is the, is the truth? And so I think it's going to be instructive for us to kind of pull these apart and talk about them. And I want to give you a little bit of a sneak peek as to, as to the, the main points that I'm going to make. So when I talk about right belief or orthodoxy, I'm going to make the point that it's really important that we prioritize the core. That there are certain doctrines that matter most. And we're going to talk about that. And what does that mean when we actually value the whole Bible? And also we're, we're, going, to, we're going to talk about that. And then as we talk about behavior or orthopraxy, I'm going to talk about why it's important that we stay in our lanes. Because there are two lanes and only two lanes that we are instructed to stay within as it relates to Christian behavior. And so I think it's going to be really uh, refreshing and, and helpful for us to talk about that. So, let's jump in. First, let's talk about orthodoxy or all the things that Christians are supposed to believe. You know, one would think with, you know, Ryan shared last week on how many different denominations there are, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like, what one would think that since Christians are all following the same book, that there would be more agreement. But alas, 
You know, one thing that we have taught the world is that Christians disagree on all kinds of things. But it does bring up a really interesting point that all those different Christian denominations and all the disagreements that we have, they are among people that are looking at the exact same book. Which means when we say, well, I just follow the Bible, it's ultimately not that helpful to say that because everyone is looking at the Bible. Everyone's looking at the Bible. But they're looking at different verses than you are. Or they're approaching it slightly different. Or they have a different lens. Or they have different assumptions and all of that. And, and instead of our differences on things causing us to approach other believers, other Christians, or, or other people with a sense of humility and saying, you know, maybe we need to learn something or all that kind of stuff, we don't actually usually respond that way. Usually Christian camps tend to, tend to sort of double down with an all or nothing approach. And you've probably heard this before, an approach that says, like, even if a, you know, certain preachers or certain authors or bloggers, even if they don't come right out and say it, it's an approach that seems to communicate, well, if you don't agree with what seems to be clear teaching of the scripture on this passage, then you probably don't believe the Bible at all. Have you, have you sensed that? Have you sensed that before? You know, um... This can happen when authors or when preachers and teachers um, like me do something like they, because there's so many topics that we can talk about. And like there's theological topics, there's also relationship topics, and there's how, how to live in culture and how to respond in this, you know, social issue, you know, all this kind of stuff. And when, uh, and when preachers and teachers and authors treat all of those topics with the exact same fervency and the exact same sense of dogmatism, it puts everyone in, a, in an awkward position because then it puts us as the listeners in a position that, that says everything is sort of equal to one another. Everything is interconnected like it's all a big string of dominoes, which forces us then that I need to doggedly protect everything because if one thing gets knocked over, this whole house of cards might come down. And I've certainly heard stories of high school students that are, you know, that are faithful high school students and they believe the Bible and they go off to college and they think they have a strong faith. It's actually a very fragile faith because it's a giant house of cards. And they interact you know, with some college professor who relishes the role of just looking at, you know, talking about something of the creation account or, or something like that and just going, plink. And then watching this whole theological framework of this poor 18-year-old just come crumbling down. Church history gives us a better way, a better way to approach this, and that is to prioritize the core. As it relates to orthodoxy, prioritize the core. Because the truth is, and please hear me on this, the truth is everything in the Bible is important. It's there for a reason. It's there for us. It is our responsibility to read it, to meditate on it, to talk about it, to figure it out, to, to try and figure out how to apply it to our life because God put it in the Bible for us. Everything is important. However, not everything is equally important because some things really are core to the Christian faith. Some things are like the, the main doctrines that the, that the Christian faith sort of hinges upon. And so there really is a core of, of, of doctrines, of, of principles and, and teachings that, that everything is built upon. But then that sort of begs the question, well, who gets to decide what's in the core? I mean, do, do I get to decide that? 
Can I just decide that for everybody else? You know, like I think that, you know, this whatever social issue that's going on or whatever thing right now, the church, the line in the sand, the people are saying, like, if you're a Christian, you have to believe, like, do I get to define that? Do we all get to define it for ourselves? Do we all get to, like, well, I think Christianity is this. Like, how does this work? Well, church history gives us some help in this regard because this has always been an issue. As Christians and as the church can get sidetracked and talk about all these different things and say, well, I think this is most important and I think this is most important. Well, what's most important? Early on in the, early on in the church in the fourth century, um, church leaders, church fathers gathered in a city in modern day Turkey. It was called Nicaea um, at, at the time. Right now it's called Iznik. I think I don't have no, no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. But they gathered at Nicaea in 325 to, um, to just talk about this issue. And they gathered there for months. And they tried to figure out, so what really is at the core? What defines the Christian faith? Fifty years later, they reconvened in Constantinople in 381. And the creed that came out of Constantinople in 381 is the creed that we commonly refer to as the Nicene Creed. And that has or that is the only creed that has functioned as a unifying um, creed and a defining creed across every major faction of Christianity for close to 1600, or about 1,600 years. It's the only creed that's held by the Catholic Church as well as pretty much every denomination in the Protestant Church and all the different wings of the Orthodox Church. So let's read it. Oh, let me actually, before we read it, let me say, that even though it has been a very useful tool throughout church history, um, it's not scripture. And it's not, you know, infallible. It's not God-breathed. No one's trying to make that argument. But it is helpful. And a lot of people for generations, for over a thousand years, have found this creed to be helpful to defining, like, what really is the important stuff that's at the center of the circle. So let's read it. It says this, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us humans and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became fully human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. He rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who in unity with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, I said, you know, it's not scripture. I actually think there's, there's a couple of phrases in there that I wish they were a little clearer on. Um, 
The main one for me is the phrase in there about baptism. We would hold at Chase Oaks that, that if there is a baptism for the remission of sins, it is the baptism of the Spirit that John the Baptist talks about in John chapter 3 and not water baptism. But um, the way that they phrased that has left that up to different interpretations by different churches, and churches have been arguing about it since. So I wish they were clear on that. Um, and if they're talking about water baptism, I think they got it wrong. You know, so it's, it's like this is not... Bible. However, it's pretty useful. And it, it's a pretty good summary of the things that are in the center of the circle. And so what it means to prioritize the core is instead of seeing everything as a, as a, as a string of dominoes, it's recognizing that there are a handful of doctrines that really are, at the, uh, that really are worth holding on to really, really tightly, and instead of like a, a web or a string of dominoes, we should see it more as a, as a series of concentric circles. And at the core is the really, really important stuff, and the next level out is stuff that's also important, but Christians might disagree on these. Orthodox Christians might disagree on these things, and, and at the next level out are maybe, maybe things that the Bible's not super clear on. You know, it's like this was contextualized in a culture 2,000 years ago. How do we contextualize it now? Christians disagree, like all that kind of stuff, and we can debate and we can talk about it. doesn't mean it's not important, but it, but it does um, change, the, change sort of our posture in the way that we interact with one another. I think that as we talk about grown-up faith, as we talk about maturing in our faith, I think part of it is learning how to distinguish between the things that we hold on to really, really tightly and the things that we sort of might need to loosen our grip on. Because... There are a thousand topics that preachers and teachers and authors will tell you this is the biblical response to XYZ. This is what the Bible teaches on this cultural topic or on this political topic or on this social issue or, or whatever. And not all of those preachers and teachers and authors agree. And some of the things that they present sound biblical and they're really pretty harmful. And so if we're kind of confused by that, if, we, if we're kind of turned around by that, if we've been turned off by some of that, my recommendation is to take a step back and prioritize the core and maybe use the Nicene Creed as a tool and go phrase by phrase and say, what does this mean? Am I, am I on board with this? Do I believe? Does this describe where I am? Does this describe what I believe? Kind of go through that. And, and, and if you don't, like if there are some things in there you disagree with, and that's like just be honest about that and ask some questions and talk to some people and figure some things out. But if you do agree with that, and it gives you a sense of solidity. Solidity? I don't know if that's a word. It makes you feel more solid. And then you can start sort of working your way out from there. And just know that the further away you get from the core, there's going to be more disagreement. And that's okay. And it doesn't have to derail our faith. I think the people who are kind of walking away or disillusioned, they're not, they're not walking away necessarily, at least from what I have heard, a belief that there's a God who loves us, who loves all of us, who sent his son to, to die for our sins so that we can have forgiveness full and free and we can have joy and an abundant life through the power of the Spirit. Like, they're not walking away from that. They're turned off by bad ideas and by strong opinions over secondary issues that were always destined to disappoint.
And it doesn't have to be that way. So our, or at least my, this is a football, you know, talk about orthodoxy is just recognizing that some, some doctrines really matter and these are core. And when we sort of prioritize those things, it does make us feel more solid. It does root us into something that's more historical, which is super helpful. And then learning to loosen our grip a little bit on some of the others and maybe lessen toning down the dogmatism on some of the other things allows us to adopt a posture of humility as we talk to other people that may disagree with us and we might even be able to learn from. So that's orthodoxy. What about orthopraxy? Or what Christians, how Christians are supposed to behave and live? I think we could all make a very long list of things that we have heard or things that we have been taught on what or how Christians are supposed to live and what they're supposed to do, what they're not supposed to do. Sometimes the list gets so long, it's just oppressive and sad. Sometimes it just gets comical when you really take a fresh look at some of the things that us Christians get all uptight about. I, I grew up in pretty conservative um, Southern Baptist churches. Uh, in fact, my, some of the first churches I was on staff with when I was a young man was in real pretty conservative uh, Southern Baptist churches. So I am very well familiar with the long list of do's and don'ts. In fact, you know, one of the jokes um, you know, from the Baptist church is, why are Baptists opposed to premarital sex? Answer, because it might lead to dancing. The, the preoccupation, our preoccupation with other people's behavior has always been an issue. In fact, in Jesus' day, you know, the religious leaders um, had taken all the commandments of the Old Testament and then had added several hundred more just to make sure everyone was walking according to the straight and narrow and was staying far away from, from God's prohibitions. And it was just oppressive. And so someone asked Jesus this question in Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is super helpful for us. Because Jesus is being asked a direct question on an issue that we need a direct and clear answer on. It's like, Jesus, could you give us a little help here? This is too much to keep track of. There's all these commands. I'm supposed to do this and not. Could you help us? Could you prioritize and, and kind of, you know, order a list? And Jesus says, I'm actually going to do better than that. I'm going to explain every command or every instruction of God as it relates to our behavior will fall into one of two lanes. So that means for us, as Jesus followers, if we are Jesus followers, as it pertains to behavior, or as it pertains to orthopraxy, one of our tasks is that we need to stay in our lanes. The first lane has or, or all of the instructions or all of the topics that are related to our personal devotion and personal delight in God. So things like prayer and worship and thanksgiving and confession, 
and reading scripture and meditating on scripture and all of those things, the, the things that are related to on the, sort of on the vertical plane, my relationship with God, there are instructions in the Bible about that, about how to pray and how to worship and all of those things. That's lane one. Lane two is much more on the horizontal plane and how we interact with the world, how we interact with one another. And he said that lane is, it, is, uh, is that you love your neighbor as yourself, meaning it's not just an affectionate love on how we feel about other people, but it's how we prioritize their other people's well-being. Now, in response to this, Jesus would later ask, uh, Jesus was later asked, then um, who's my neighbor? Like, are you talking about everybody? Like, is that my, just the people who live next to me? Like those neighbors or is it, you know, like whatever? And in response to that question, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you've probably heard that story. You know, a traveler is, is along the road. He is waylaid by uh, bandits or robbers who, who rob him and beat him up and leave him for dead on the side of the road. Well, then some other travelers pass by and they pay him, um, they, they, they pay him no mind. They do not um, address his very clear and apparent need until a Samaritan comes by. And a Samaritan was a cultural enemy. And the Samaritan has pity on him and he binds his wounds and then he puts the man on his own animal, you know, for, for transport and takes him to an inn, pays out of his own pocket to make sure he's well taken care of. And so the point is that the definition of neighbor has to include people who don't look like us, who don't see the world like we do, who don't agree with us. And Love does whatever is required for the other person's well-being, even at our own personal cost. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, that's what he's talking about. And then later, he, he further clarified the second lane at the end of his ministry. And he, and he says these words. This is in John 13. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The key phrase in that whole, in those two verses is, as I have loved you. So in this second lane, it's not just about loving your neighbor, what Jesus is saying. It's like, he, he's saying, when I say that, this is what I mean. I mean, I want you to love people in the same way that I have loved you. Which is a radical self-sacrificing, generous love. And it's not just you know, a love for our, our kids or our spouse or our friends or the people who love us back. It is a love that is also for or especially for people who don't love us back or people who don't have anything to offer. And it's the poor, it's the, it's the oppressed, or it's the, it's the downtrodden. It's the people who might even be sort of cultural you know, enemies. This is so important for us to think about because Jesus is defining orthopraxy for us. And he's saying all of God's instructions as it relates to our behavior falls into two lanes. It's either our personal devotion and delight in God or it is a radical, selfless, generous love toward other people. And that's it. That's it. That is the summation, according to Jesus, of Christian behavior. 
which is shocking. And that love, and it can show up in a lot of different ways. Uh, love toward others can show up as hospitality. It can show up as care. It can show up as um, advocacy. It can show up as generosity, like all those things. And so even though it can, um, it can be revealed in a thousand different ways, that love can show up in a thousand different ways, we're never called to deviate from it. It is always Love. That means that when we see expressions of Christianity in culture, when we see what churches are being known for or what Christian leaders are saying and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, it is, if it is not, if it, if it cannot be defined as an expression of love, then it's just wrong. It's just wrong. I think that this is, um, I think this is a little bit of what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the love chapter. Uh, if you've been around church, you've probably heard about the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. If you haven't been around church, there's a good chance you've heard some of these verses uh, anyway. Because um, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, it's where Paul says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Well, even if you haven't been around church very long, there's a good chance you've heard this maybe at a wedding. <laughs> like we use these verses a lot in weddings, which is fine, I guess. But even though like Paul's not actually talking about romantic love in 1 Corinthians 13. He's talking about how Christians should behave. And how the church or how the Christian community, what they should be known for in culture. And how, you know, he's talking about Christian orthopraxy. And he's describing what it looks like. Because in the verses just prior to this, this is what he says. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over, and, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. He's saying as Christ followers, as individuals or as a community, we can be really impressive and we can be magnetic and we can draw people to us and that's fine. Or we can be really smart and we can, um, you know, unveil and reveal all the mysteries of, of the Bible and spiritual life and all of those things. Or we can, uh, we can be really influential. And we can gain political power or cultural influence and, and, and those types of things, and that's fine. Or we could even have outward you know, demonstrations of generosity and all of that, and that's fine. But if it's, not, if it's not motivated by love, if we're not first and foremost known by love, then we are absolutely wasting our time. Because love is the only tool in our toolbox that actually works. 
what tends to happen in religious circles, um, and this is just in all honesty, and I know that you've seen this before, but what can tend to happen is that we can get very uptight about other people's behavior. We can also tend to give ourselves a pass on our own lack of love because we have you know, some devotion to what we think is some higher cause. Like, we can be a jerk so long as it's for a good reason, right? Or we can give ourselves permission to shame other people or to demean other people or to attack other people because of the moral crusade that we're on or because of the cultural crusade that we're on or because of the political crusade that we're on or the theological crusade that we're on. But the problem is, in Christianity, the ends never justify the means ever how we do what we do is so intertwined with our message of good news that our method is part of our message and this and god has demonstrated this to us right those of us who are followers of jesus christ we have benefited from that. God has demonstrated that the only way to truly impact and change the world is by impacting and changing the human heart. And the only way to impact and change the human heart is through radical, selfless, generous love. And we've benefited from that. And we get to experience that love and we get to experience, because of that love, we get to experience joy and hope and peace and all of those things. And then Jesus calls us to join him in this mission of radical love that can actually change the world. And it is a mission that is as countercultural today as it was then. It is as counterintuitive to good, upright, well-behaved religious people today as it was then. Because it, is a, because it is a love that values love of people instead of victory over people. It's a love that doesn't just care about its own personal interests, but rather the interests of others. It is a, it is a love that doesn't fight for its own uh, freedom and justice, but rather for justice and freedom for others. It is, it is not a love of self-defense, but of self-denial. It is so counterintuitive in its selfless generosity. But it is the only thing that can truly change that can truly change the world. And we have experienced it. Those who have placed their faith in Christ and have experienced the love of God, the transforming love of God, we have experienced that love. That, and God, called, God has a mission of this radical, selfless love that he has called us to be a part of. You know, both, both lanes in this orthopraxy question of our behavior, both on the vertical and on the horizontal, both of these lanes can be reduced down and defined by the same word, right? By love. It is love God and it's love people. It's love. It is the only thing we are called to do. That's it. I wonder when I sort of survey the Christian landscape in America and I see what Christian leaders say and I see what churches are shouting from their rooftops and I see social media and I hear like I, 
I just wonder what Jesus thinks. And I certainly cannot speak for him. Um, But I do imagine sometimes him speaking to the American church and saying, you know I care for you, right? You know that. I died for you. I've blessed you beyond measure. You've been adopted into the family. You're part of the family. I love you. You know that. But honestly, you had one job. And that was to be the most radically loving people on the planet. Prioritize, you know, if, if you are here, if you're wherever you're watching from right now and you're feeling disillusioned, you're feeling like the, and you're, or whatever, you're confused or you're just dismayed or you're tired or, or all of those things, prioritize the core, stay in our lanes, love God, love God, love people. And if any of us are shaky right now in our faith, to sort of go back to that. And I can say, if, if, if anyone is like me, when I think again of, of, of God's amazing love for me and his amazing love for us and what I have been able to experience and, and the amazing mission of love that he has called, called me to, something deep stirs within me. Something foundational. It is a hearkening back to what drew me to Christ in the first place. It is a rekindling of my first love. And I can tell you, I need it. I need it. But if you're confused, uh, because so much of what happens in the world, so much of what happens under the name of Christianity or in the name of Jesus doesn't seem to match Jesus very much, please know that you are not alone in that confusion. Throughout church history, there have been multiple times when churches have had to, when the church has sort of had to regroup and rediscover the amazing power of love. And I, I think we're in one of those moments. And I'm not talking about us as Chase. I am so proud of what Chase Oaks is doing. I am dismayed by what I see outside. And I, I think we're in a moment like that. I hope and I pray that we are in a moment like that. God is inviting you. To experience his amazing love full and free. That because of Jesus' gift of himself, because of his death and resurrection on the cross, you can experience forgiveness of sins and communion with God and eternal life. And you can have that just by faith because of his grace. And he is also inviting you on a mission of, 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 of radical and generous and selfless love, the only thing powerful enough to actually change the world. That is what the Christian faith is. That is all that it is. And we can make it about so many other things, but like Vince Lombardi talking to a group of professional athletes, sometimes we just need a reminder of, okay, no, 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 this is, what, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is how we do it. This is why. Sometimes we've got to clear the clutter and focus on what matters most. And I just think that if, if we did that, a whole lot of us would just be a whole lot happier, more joyful, less angry, less combative, more fulfilled. And I think if we all did that, 
honestly, the world would be a better place. And God would delight to do amazing things through us. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to worship together, and we are going to sing about what, about what we get to experience and God's amazing love for us. And then wherever we are, we get the chance to then go out into the world and represent that well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess that we can get so sidetracked and on to so many different things. And just like Ryan talked about last week, it is all about Jesus and personal relationship with him. And as we looked at this week, Father, I pray that you would settle us into something historical, that it's not just up to each individual to build their own faith. You are calling us into something solid and true and real. And you have told us how to change the world. And it is through love. I pray that you'd give us the courage to live boldly into that love. And I pray that you would do amazing things through us as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.